So most of us hopefully recognize that we are all sinners. We have all violated God's law in a multitude of ways. But here's a question. Have you committed the sin that leads on to death? Now, in some sense, all sin leads on to death because all sin leads to hell. But have you particularly committed the sin that leads on to death? Second question, do you know anyone who has committed the sin that leads on to death? And final question, how would you even know if you or someone else had committed the sin that leads on to death? Hopefully, by the end of the sermon, you'll have some more clarity on maybe this confusing and difficult and somewhat obscure concept. So in light of that, please open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 5. We're going to be reading verses 13 through 21. 1 John chapter 5, verses 13 through 21. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sin that does not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. Starting beginning, verse 13 again, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. John begins this passage with assuming that his audience believes in the name of Christ. But we, of course, should not assume that. We should simply ask ourselves, the question is, do we believe in the name of Jesus? And what exactly does it mean to believe in him. Believe what about him? Believe the fact that Jesus was a real man that lived 2,000 years ago? Almost everybody believes that. What about the fact that he was a prophet and that he taught about the kingdom of God and he taught about Christianity and Judaism and those kind of things? What about the fact that he did many signs? Once again, that's pretty much universally agreed upon. That there was a man named Jesus 2,000 years ago. He was a prophet. He taught about the kingdom of God and that he did many signs. What, you could be a Jew and believe that. You could be a Muslim you can even be an atheist and believe that. Even most people believe that Jesus was a miracle worker. Did you know that? Almost everybody agrees that Jesus was a miracle worker. The atheist says that he was a magician. The Jew says, because they were there, they cannot deny that Jesus did these amazing miracles, and they say that you were empowered by the devil. The point is that nobody denied that Jesus was a miracle worker. Real quick, let's look at how the Jews of Jesus' day view Jesus' as miracles. We see that in Matthew chapter 12, verse 22. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the Son of David? Can this be the Messiah, the Mashiach, the promised Christ? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebub, that's the devil, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid to waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. Who then would, how then would his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. 
but if it's by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, and the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his goods. Here's the point. The point is that the people who were around Jesus' day, namely the Jews, who were his opponents, could not deny his miracle power. They recognized that he did do these miracles, but they simply said that this was actually done through the power of Satan. And Jesus, of course, argues with them that's absurd. You cannot have Satan fighting against Satan. If he does, how will he possibly succeed? And then Jesus warns them that they are either committing or dangerously close to committing the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. But here's the point, moving back to our text. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? It's more than believing he was a man 2,000 years ago. It's more than believing he was a prophet. It's more than even believing that he was a miracle worker. Again, most people believe that. In fact, there are 1.8 billion people that everything I just said, prophet, miracle worker, all of those things, not even a false miracle worker, but a true miracle worker, are headed to hell. 1.8 billion people. Does anybody have any idea who those people are that believe that Jesus is the prophet? He's from God. He did miracles, but are still going to hell. Those are Muslims. Muslims believe that. This is not sufficient to simply believe that to be saved. So what is sufficient? What do we must we believe about Jesus? Well, our text tells us, verse 13 again, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. He didn't just say, I'm writing these things to you who believe in Jesus, but specifically who believe in the name of the Son of God. What we must believe about Jesus is namely that this man is more than a man. This man is the Son of God. Now, what does that mean, he's the Son of God? It means that this man has a pre-existence before his birth. You don't. I was just, the other day, actually it was last night, I was watching uh, this documentary that was comparing Joseph Smith to Jesus Christ. Joseph Smith said we all have pre-existence. We're all just these floating things and that existed thousands and billions of years ago and so forth and so on. But none of that's true. You came into being in existence. Probably nobody in this room is over 100 years old. So probably less than 100 years ago, you came into existence. Prior to that, you were nothing. You were in your parents' womb, loins kind of thing. But you really didn't exist. But Jesus did exist prior to his birth. John the Baptist, if you recall, that's his cousin who was older than him. You know, he was older. He said this about Jesus in John chapter 1, verse 30. He says, This is he whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. So John the Baptist recognized that something about Jesus preceded him in time. But of course he was older. Jesus says this about himself in John chapter 17. He says, Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus wanted to be re-glorified. He wanted to once again receive the glory that he once had when? Prior to the world being created. Prior to Genesis chapter 1. Remember Genesis 1? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, what happened before that? Jesus is saying, I want the glory that I had with you before Genesis verse 1. Of course, John 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not made anything that was made. Now, what do we normally call a being that has existed from all of eternity that created everything? What do we call that being? Anybody? We call it God. And Jesus is saying, that's true about me. I've always existed, and I am the creator of 
everything. This is what it means that Jesus is the Son of God. But notice, in John 1, 1, it doesn't just say that Jesus was God. It does say that. It says the Word was God, but the text also says the Word was with God. And so this is where we get the idea of the doctrine of the Trinity, that there, are, there is one God, but there are three persons within that God. We have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So this is what it means when we declare that Jesus is the Son of God. We're saying Jesus is the being that has existed from all of eternity, that God the Father created the world through. He is your creator. He is your God. Even in the Old Testament, in Isaiah, we just read this in Sunday school, that when it was talking about a child will be given to us, and one of his name was Mighty God. The government will be put on his shoulders, this one who is Mighty God. And interesting enough, this is exactly what those 1.8 billion people named Muslims refuse to believe. Isn't that right, Peter? They refuse to believe this. In fact, unfortunately, some very bad translations, people who claim to be evangelicals but they're not, have, when they translated Bibles, have taken Bibles over to Muslims and taken out the phrase, Son of God. You know why? Because it's offensive. Because they don't like it. But we are not allowed to reject God's word because it's offensive. Because we don't like it. This is where the rubber meets the road. Do you see that in the text, verse 13? We must believe that Jesus is the Son of God, not erase it from your Bible. This is the thing that we must do. We must believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, why would people want to erase that from your Bible? Because it's difficult. Because it's challenging. Because it's something that our flesh does not like. It's a hard truth that God became a man, and not just any man, but a Jewish man living thousands of years ago as a carpenter who died on a cross. That is a difficult truth for people to accept, and so people want to change that truth and make Jesus something else, but we can't do that. And there was another group of people in Paul's day, they were Greeks, who struggled not so much with the concept that God became a human being. They had all kinds of concepts of God becoming a human being, cohabitating with women, and all of the sort. So they didn't have any problem with that. What they really had a problem with, though, is that God would become human flesh. They don't have any problem with celestial flesh, some, something that looks like human flesh, but they had a problem with God becoming actual flesh, and the reason is, is because they view the flesh as inherently corrupt. If you're familiar with Greek philosophy, you know what I'm talking about. The, the flesh is a prison for the soul, and so we have to die and become free of this prison. And so the idea of God going into the prison of that which is inherently evil was incoherent to them, and so they rejected this, and they created a heresy called docetism, which says that Jesus really wasn't a man. Hope you're seeing the commonality of heresies. People are always trying to deny some aspect of Jesus, namely that he's a man or that he was God. We can't. The hypostatic union is that God is both fully man and fully God. But that's what they wanted to reject. And John, we've already seen elsewhere that John declared these people as antichrist. You cannot deny the humanity of Christ. You cannot deny the deity of Christ. But let me ask you this. What are you tempted in God's word to deny? What area and aspect of our culture is incompatible with Christianity and you want to downplay, dismiss, or want to get rid of. You cannot do this. We must stand on God's word. We must recognize that Jesus really is the Son of God. He really did exist with the Father before the world began. He really did create all things. He really did become a man. He did live a sinless life. He did perform many miracles. He taught about the kingdom of God. And most importantly, he died on that cross for our sins. 
And he did not stay there. But three days later, he rose from the grave, proving that God God showed that Jesus was who he said he was, namely, the Son of God. And now, where's Jesus? Anybody? Where's Jesus right now? He's in my heart. Okay, but where, where is he really? Where is he really? He really is in my heart, but he's ascended at the right hand of the Father. Jesus did not just simply rise in my heart. He rose from a literal grave. He ascended on high, and now he's at the right hand of the Father with a name above every name, and he's declared King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, did I say anything that's not familiar? Hopefully, you know all of this, and more importantly, blessed are you if you believe all of this, that Jesus really is at the right hand of God. Now, if you do believe this, you do believe that Jesus is Lord, meaning he's boss, meaning he's king, meaning he's ruler, then there's a wonderful benefit for you. And our text tells us that in the end of verse 13. It says, if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he's writing these things so that you may know that you have eternal life. Now, this is such a great truth because eternal life communicates salvation. You have eternal salvation. Now, some people think that you cannot know whether that you are right with God. And some people would actually say, by saying, I have eternal life, that I am saved, that this is presumptuous. That we cannot know this. All we can do is hope that God will be merciful on that day. Every time I find a true legalist, someone who believes that they're saved by their works, you take a Muslim, you take a Jehovah Witness, you take a Mormon, any of these people, I ask them, are they going to be saved? And then I press them about what about their sin. And usually this is what they end up saying is, well, God will be merciful. And I just hope that he will, in fact, save me. Hopefully you don't feel that way. Not that hopefully you do agree that God is merciful, but hopefully you have more confidence than they do, that you're not just hoping on that day, you're wondering, will God declare you innocent? But we can have more confidence than that. We can know without being presumptuous that we have eternal life, namely by believing in the Son of God. That's what the text says. That if you believe in the Son of God, you may know this is your birthright, this is your privilege. You don't have to wonder if you're going to be saved. You can know that you have eternal life, that you, when you die, and you meet God face to face on that day that he will welcome you into the kingdom, saying, well done, good and faithful servant, inherit the kingdom, prepare for you from the foundation of the world. You can know that. There's only two possibilities. He'll say, well done, or say, depart from me, you work of iniquity, I never knew you. Inherit the fire, prepare for the devil and his angels, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now, what is the basis of heaven and hell, of eternity of joy or eternity of torment and misery? is based solely on our faith in Jesus. That's what our text says. It doesn't mention baptism. It doesn't mention church attendance. Thank you all for being here. But it doesn't mention that. It doesn't mention how much money you give to your church. In fact, there's no good works at all. You see that? Look at 13. Scan it over. There is no good works mentioned here, and faith is not a work. Faith is a conception of your mind. Believe me, faith is not a work. Just imagine if I sat around my desk just thinking all day. And my boss says, why didn't you get any work done? I said, don't you know my thoughts are work? No. My thoughts are not work. My beliefs are not work. Nobody pays me for my beliefs. They, believe, they pay me for what I do. And faith is not something you do. Faith is something that you believe and you trust in. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Ephesians 2.8. So we cannot look at our works as something that will save us because they will not. But our works will flow 
from our faith. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. To give you an illustration of this, I want you to think about Passover. I want you to take you back 3,000, 4,000 years ago at the night of Passover. You remember the scene, Moses had already done all of these miraculous signs, let my people go, right? And they still didn't let the Jews go. So it's all going to this crescendo, this climax, where Moses declares that that very night the destroyer is going to come through the town. And everybody who does not have what? The blood of the Passover lamb applied to their house. The destroyer is going to come into their house, and they're going to visit them with death. Now, what did you have to do to keep the destroyer from killing your loved one? Did you have to be baptized? Well, there wasn't baptism. You had to be circumcised. That's nice, but no. You didn't have to be circumcised. You didn't have to be baptized. It didn't matter if you fasted. It didn't matter if you prayed. You could be praying, God, please keep me from the destroyer all day. Right? You could be praying that. Literally, you could be praying, God, don't let the destroyer kill my family. And there's no blood on your house. Guess what? The destroyer is coming in. He's going to kill your child. What did you have to do? You had to believe that Moses was telling you the truth. And you had to apply the blood of the lamb to your house. And the question is, have you applied the blood of the lamb to your house? Did you say you believe in it? You can say you believe in the blood of the lamb all you want. As long as you didn't take that blood and put it on your doorpost, the destroyer was going to come in, right? Isn't that true? I believe, but you never, did, you never did anything. No, you have to actually put your belief into action by actually applying the blood to yourself. And so, too, you must actually not just say you believe, but truly do believe. Truly do call upon the name of the Lord. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Have you called upon the name of the Lord? You remember when Paul was preaching the gospel to the Philippian jailer, and he ran to Paul and said, Sir, what must I do to be saved? And Paul responded, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. That's what we must do. We must believe. We must cry out to the Lord. Ask him to save us. Lord, wash me from my sins. Make me clean. I repent of my sins. Take it away. And if you do, you can know you have eternal life. Isn't that wonderful? You can know you have eternal life. So which one of you here, if you're honest with yourself, don't know you have eternal life? Which one? Only you can answer that question. Ask yourself, do you know that you have eternal life? And if there's any question whether you have eternal life, go back to the pool of blood, put your stick in, and pour it on your house. Cry upon the name of the Lord, and you shall be saved. All right, let's look to the next portion of our passage, verse 14 and 15. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we asked of him. So verse 13 tells us how we know that we can be saved. And verse 14 and 15 tell us the benefits of that salvation in this life. What are some of the benefits of your salvation, knowing that you have eternal life now? Well, here's the benefit, that God is your friend. I know everybody believes God is their friend, right? I mean, everybody kind of thinks that God is on their side and that God wants to bless them. I remember even when I was an unbeliever, I prayed to God, God, please make me tall like Mike. I want to be six foot six. He never did answer that prayer, but I still felt comfortable asking God for these kind of things because it just seemed like God was a nice guy and he would just bless me. But that's not true. You know, God is angry at the wicked every day. 
that the wrath of God is on unbelievers. Yes, he's offered them salvation, but they are not his friend. The description of being a friend of God is a description of a believer, somebody has made peace with God. And so now that we have become believers, we now have peace with God, and now we can boldly approach the throne of grace. Remember the wonderful story of Esther? She had a terrible husband, but nevertheless, her husband was the king. And she had to plead for the Jews, and she had to go and talk to her husband. And Mordecai was telling her to do that. She said, well, it's not my time. He hasn't invited me into the throne. If I just go barging in and he doesn't lift his scepter, I'll be killed. Remember that scene? And, of course, she just boldly went in there. And because he turned out to be not as bad of a husband as she thought he was, he lifted his scepter and she was spared. Well, that's a picture of us. That if we boldly approach the throne of grace without the blood of Christ, then we'll be slaughtered and killed as an unclean thing. But fortunately, with the blood of Christ, we've made peace with God, and now we can boldly approach that throne of grace. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16 says, Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in the time of need. Now we can come. And interesting enough, not only are we invited to talk to God, but we're actually commanded to talk to God. It's not just that we get to go to the throne of grace, but we're actually told over and over in God's word to approach his throne of grace and to pray to him. Here's a sampling that we can find in the Bible. 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. Ephesians 6.18, pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all of God's people. Pray all the time, all occasions. If you're happy, Pray. If you're sad, pray. Somebody needs help, pray. If somebody's been blessed, thank God and still pray, right? We're supposed to be always praying. Well, consider Luke chapter 8. Jesus told them this parable to the effect that they always ought to pray and never lose heart. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept on coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, for a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay longer, long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? All of these passages are saying the same thing. Continue to pray. Continue to come. So here's the point. Praying is not only a privilege, but it's also a duty. Now why? Why is something that is a privilege also a duty? Is it because God is bored in heaven? He just needs you to talk to him? He needs someone to spend time with him? Of course not. God is the God of happiness. Did you know that? God is the happiest being around. We in this world are full of misery, trial, distress, anxiety, and God is just always happy. God is the God of happiness. He does not need to hear from us. As Acts 17 tells us, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. But he's the one who gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. That passage is incredible. Think about this. You, when you come here to worship God, you, when you pray, you, when you read the word of God, are not doing God a favor. God does not need you. God is perfectly happy without you. He's not 
some kind of needy person who just needs your worship. No, but rather he's a generous God who gives to you. He actually has your best need and your best interest in mind. He's not a needy beggar, but a generous giver. God commands us to pray because it's for our good and not for his own need. And this is our great privilege that God tells us to pray because he wants to answer those prayers and to bless us. Now, God will bless us and bless others as long as we pray according to his will. And you've got to think about that. What power has God given to men? God has given us the power to move him. You see what I'm saying here? God has promised to answer our prayers and to do things based on those prayers. But the reverse is also true. The Bible also declares, you have not because you ask not. To me, that's the most important passage on prayer. Because some people don't believe it. I'll say it again. You have not because you ask not. A lot of people believe that you can have even if you don't ask. That God's going to bless you the same whether you ask or not. But the Bible doesn't say that. It says you have not because you ask not. God has given human beings, namely us, the power to move him when we pray according to his will. And he tells us to do it. And to do it all the time. Did you know that we can call down heavenly fire on our enemies? No, I'm not talking about Elijah calling down heavenly fire or what the sons of thunder tried to do to the Samaritan village. I'm not talking about burning down Planned Parenthood buildings. We don't want to burn them down. We want them to be shut down, right? I'm not talking about that. But you can call down heavenly fire on the Canaanites in your own life. I was recently talking to a brother, and he said he was reading the book of Numbers, and I'm thinking, you got to get out of that book. You're going to die. You got to get into the New Testament. You know, go to Proverbs, Psalms, something. You see the little Bible? It has New Testament, Psalms, and Proverbs, not Numbers. But he said that he was reading Numbers, and he says he was blessed. And I thought, well, this is this is interesting. And I was like, well, what's going on in Numbers? And he said, you know, there's all this conquest language, and they're taking the land and getting rid of the Philistines and the Canaanites, and. I think the book is really talking about getting rid of the Canaanites in our own lives and seeing how they are creating these civilizations that are luring us into sin. And you know what God told us to do? He told us to burn them up, to eradicate them. But do you know what the Jews did do? They said, I'm smarter than God. I will conquer them, but I'll keep them around for forced labor because they're better here serving me than dead. That's what they did. And do you know what happened to the Jews? They were corrupted. Instead of making a positive influence on the Canaanites, the Canaanites made a negative influence on them. Well, guess what? We're just like those Jews. God has told you not to play with sin, not to mess around with sin, not that you can somehow redeem this sin, or that you can just have a little bit of it, and it's going to be really better if I do this little lie or I do this little thing. You think that you and sin have made some kind of agreement. You made a covenant with death, and you think you're going to be the winner in the end. But it's not true. It really isn't. That that sin is corrupting you. It's changing you. It's distorting you. Your love is growing cold. Your heart for God is drying up. So what must you do? Call down the heavenly fire. Repent. Turn back. Burn them up. Regain your time, your talent, your treasure. Find out what is distracting you from the service of God. The Bible says that we are supposed to be living sacrifices which is your spiritual worship. Some translations say, which is your reasonable service. The God who saved you and redeemed you, who wanted you to be zealous for good works, calls you to be that, zealous for good works. And there's idols 
There's Canaanites that are hanging out that need the heavenly fire to come down and be destroyed. Now, how do you get the heavenly fire? Do more push-ups, sit-ups, go on a diet. You're not getting heavenly fire that way. You get the heavenly fire by praying, by asking God, destroy these idols in my life. But before you can destroy them, you have to ask God to open up your eyes. Open up your eyes. Will you pray that prayer? God, show me where the Canaanites are in my life. Help me destroy them. I beg you, please ask the Lord to do that. And he will. And then once he shows that to you, pray down the heavenly fire. God, get rid of this sin. Decrease it. You have to do it over and over. Day in and day out. Kill this idol. And guess what? God will do it. Did you know that? It is always God's will for you to be more holy. For you to be his servant. You can never wonder. God, I wonder if I should get rid of these idols in my life. Who knows? Your will be done. No. You know it. This is the will of God. Your sanctification. That you abstain from sexual immorality. You can put anything in that list. You abstain from wickedness. That is God's will for your life. Pray that he reveal the Canaanites and that he bring down the heavenly fire against them. All right, let's look at verse 16 and 17. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask God and will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that, all wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Okay, so there is a lot here, and we will definitely get to this sin that leads to death and the sin that doesn't lead to death, but let's not miss the main point of this part of our passage. And here's the main point, that prayer is not just for you and your life, but prayer is for other people's life. I remember one time when I just got saved and I was on all this kind of medication. I was on um, Adderall, which is just basically a narcotic. And I was definitely high out of my mind. And I remember I was walking in the mall, and I was, the sun was coming in, and there was water there, and I thought I was glowing. I thought I was just like a man in white, emanating light everywhere. I thought I was some kind of priestly figure. It wasn't true. I was under the influence of drugs. But here's the point. There should be a sense that when you look at yourself, you realize that you are a priest, that you are a priestly figure, and that you can call blessings down on other people. Did you know that? God made you a priest, and he calls you to intercede for the sake of others so that you can bless them. Isaiah 59, 15 says this, The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one, and he was appalled that there was no one to intervene. To intercede. God, when he sees injustice, then looks at you and says, what are you doing? How are you interceding? How are you intervening? If you don't, he's appalled. You're supposed to see yourself as a priestly figure who goes around and calls down blessings for other people. You remember the words of Cain after he killed his brother? He, he, literally, his hands are wet with his brother's blood, and God comes to Cain, and he says to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And Cain said, I do not know, am I my brother's keeper? Now, what is the answer to that question? Are you your brother's keeper? The answer is yes. You are your brother's keeper. You are supposed to watch over your brother. And when you see that he is in sin, what should you do? What should your first response be? 
Should your first response be to whisper, to gossip, to slander, to think that you're better than them? Or should your first response be to pray to God and ask that God would help them, that God would be with them, that God would strengthen them? This passage tells us that our response should not be slander, should not be self-righteousness, but should be prayer. When you see your brother in sin, don't slander them, but pray for them. And what does our passage tell us? Look at it again. Look at verse 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. Does anybody see a little note under the word God? And God will give him life at the end of verse 16. The actual Greek there is, and he will give him life. It's kind of ambiguous. But if you put he there, he shall ask. Who's the he? You. You shall ask, and he will give him life. And so there's a real question there of whether the he there refers to us or God. But either way, it doesn't really matter. The, the, the truth is still the same. God, in response to our prayers, will give this brother life when we see him in sin and we pray. This is what God has called us to do. Do you know that you probably have some people that you need to thank? How has God preserved you? Let me tell you, right here in this passage. Somebody saw you sinning, somebody prayed for you, and God gave you life. That's what the text says. And be that somebody for somebody else. Does that make sense? Watch your brother. Watch your sister. If they fall into sin, take it to the Lord in prayer, believing that God will answer and restore that person. Because that's what he says he does, and that's exactly what he does do. Now, now let's move to this question of what is the sin that leads on to death? What is that sin? Well, the text tells us that if you see your brother committing one type of sin, namely one that does not lead to death, you'll be restored. But he says, I do not say that one should pray if someone commits a sin that leads on to death. So what is the sin that leads to death? Well, the sin that leads to death is the sin where God will not answer. He will not answer this prayer, but he will answer all the other prayers. And so before we define death, we need to define life. What does it mean that God will give him life when you sin? It means salvation. It means restoration. It means that you're restored. It means that you don't go and die in the death of apostasy. And so if God does not answer that prayer, instead of you getting life, you end up leading to death, which is apostasy. And so what is the sin that leads to death? It's a sin of apostasy. That's what it is. There are certain sin that lead to apostasy. A passage tells us that not all sin leads to apostasy, but certain sin does lead to apostasy and leads to damnation. Now, this might be a little uncomfortable for you because there's this Christian lingo that all sins are equal, right? All sins are equal. You're, you have this type of sin, I have this type of sin, you know. It's all the same, right? It's not all the same. Look at the text. There's at least two differences, one that leads to death and one that does not lead to death. The truth of the matter is that all Christians sin. If you spend enough time with me, you will find out that I'm a sinner, right? Everybody at kickball saying amen? You guys are all there? Right? You will discover that I am a sinner. You will. I cannot hide it well enough. I'm not really trying to hide it. I'm a sinner, and so are you. But certain sin leads to death, and certain sin does not lead to death. Certain sin leads to excommunication, and other sins do not lead to excommunication. And we kind of know that, right? We kind of know that. We know at game night things can happen. People can say things they really shouldn't say, joke in ways they really shouldn't joke. But nobody thinks we should kick them out of the church. Thank the Lord. Nobody thinks that. Hopefully not. 
But there's other sins that if we found out you were committing, then you should be kicked out. I'll give you a case in point. In the Corinth church, you remember there was a woman who had his stepmother, and Paul found out about this, and he said, you guys are all boastful and happy and rejoicing and talking about how open-minded you guys are and how loving you are, and said, you should be mourning. Throw the man out and deliver him to Satan. You see? There were certain sins that were so heinous in nature that they required instant excommunication. Well, Paul puts it this way. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor the revilers, nor the swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. It's very clear. Do not be deceived. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. But you might say, well, how do I know if I'm that person? Well, you characterize by those sins. Is that your identity? Or just put it differently. People who act like we can't discover if this passage refers to us, then how did you ever appoint an elder in the first place? Because the elder has a list of positive qualifications that you have to be able to look at somebody and say, I think that that basically fits you. Well, this is the negative qualifications, and you should be able to look at this list and say, does this fit me? And if it does, these are the sins that lead on to death. It is these sins right here. There are patterns of sin, unrepentant lifestyles that ultimately end up leading you to apostatize, abandon your faith, reject God altogether, and end up in hell. And the fact of the matter is you guys probably all know people like that, right? That you walked with, that you talked with, that had professions, that you prayed with. And then you started seeing sin creep into their lives, right? Well, that's no different than anybody else. And then hopefully you prayed, somebody prayed, you were watching, hoping they're going to return. But did they return? No. They got worse, and they got worse, and their faith became smaller and smaller, and eventually it died. Isn't that true? We've all seen that. This is the sin that leads on to death. Or put it in the words of Hebrews 10.26, If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think? will be deserved of the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. There are two types of sins that you see in a believer's life. The type of sin that is creeping into their life and you're praying, you're exhorting them, and they come back. And we've all been there, right? We've all started backsliding, heading in the wrong direction, and then we've come back and we've been restored. That is a sin that does not lead to death. That is a sin that leads back to life and people are praying for us and God is hearing that prayer. The sin that leads to death can look like that exact same sin. Exact same sin. But it doesn't, the person never comes back. They go from bad to worse. They're not led to repentance. Their faith shrivel ups and they die. So have you committed the sin that leads to death? Well, has your faith shrivel up? Has it disappeared? Are you no longer believing in Christ? then maybe you have. Hopefully not. Hopefully you're still tender inside. Hopefully you're not committing these sins at all. But if you are, and you are tender inside, repent and be restored. Come on back and have hope for other people. But 
how do you know if someone committed the sin that leads to death? Well, have you watched them in their Christian life and they've gone from bad to worse and they used to claim to be a believer and now no longer claim to be a believer? Pray for them. I have no problem with you praying for them, but there's a real possibility that they might have committed the sin that leads to death. And I'll tell you the honest, the honest truth is this. The scariest sign that somebody has committed the sin that leads on to death is when you stop praying for them. When you yourself are no longer even motivated to pray for this person because they seem that far gone. That's awful. If you love somebody and you think somebody's in that situation, I beg you, keep praying for them. Keep praying for them. Keep asking God and keep beating on God's door saying, God, give them another chance. Help them. Restore them. But in the end, God has not promised to bring back those who committed the sin that leads on to death. He actually promised the opposite. He said they went out from us, but they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they were not of us. It's a sad reality. There are false believers in every church. And uh, they, they stay with us for a while, but then they disappear. But the good news is sometimes people look like they're in this category, but they're not. And that's why you should continue to pray and ask God to save them. Please join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we just think about those who were with us at one point, people that we love and care about, and who are not with us anymore. And we just ask that you would shower them with grace and continue to draw them ever near to your throne of grace. And help us to watch our souls, Lord, so we don't end up in this category. In Jesus' name, amen.